Today we're actually going to get a chance to talk to somebody who played with Bonds, who was in the same dugout as him, and got to see the legend firsthand. And he was really good. Uh, there's a year he finishes higher than Barry Bonds in the MVP voting. National League most valuable player, Barry Bonds, agreed to a six-year contract with the Giants worth in excess of $43 million. This is a special moment, though, for you, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, to go home and, and to play, I mean, for the Giants, your dad played there, and your, and your godfather uh, with, with Willie there, I mean, uh, this is special, though, beyond money, isn't it? I just think that they're committed to winning, yeah, I mean, and that's all I've ever wanted. That's it. I'm um, <laughs> ecstatic. I'll let you guys know everything tomorrow. <laughs> Thanks, Barry. Okay. <laughs> He's excited. <laughs> You're excited. You're... So you guys just heard Barry Bonds talking in his introductory press conference with the Giants about his new home in San Francisco coming off of his 1992 MVP win with the Pirates. He was home very clearly. He was very emotional. He had spoken about this after his career as well. He was going home back to the place where his father played, where his godfather became a legend. Bonds was clearly right where he wanted to be. So today I want to talk about the the years leading up to the peak of Bonds' career in the early 2000s. So we're at 1993 with the Giants, his first season with them, and we'll go through, I'd say, 2000 up until that peak of his career. Well, this was the start of a pretty significant career. Bonds would lead the team in B-War for the next 12 years. And funny enough, only one other player in Giants history has done that for the exact same length of 12 years. Could you guess I wonder who that, who that could be. <laughs> uh, is it that same godfather, Willie Mays? It's that same godfather. So not only did they both lead for 12 years, Bobby Bonds also led the team in B-War for one year. So all three of them did at one point, which is pretty cool. There you go. So that first year's team, when he goes to the Giants in 1993, uh, they were really good, but I don't know if you know this, they won 103 games and did not make the playoffs, which is like basically un- impossible to do. Yeah, this was actually the year before the wild card was introduced. So, you know, had they done it a year later, they would have been just fine. But the team that beat them out in what Bonds and others have called one of the greatest pennant races of all time were the Atlanta Braves, the team that plagued Bonds throughout his Pirates career, especially towards those those last few years there in that championship series as we talked about last time. Almost could have been a Brave, too. And uh, the thing that I want to drill home most, which is so weird, is that the Braves are in the West at this time. Barry still played very well in 93. I believe he won the MVP. Is that correct? Yes. 1993 for Barry Bonds. Let's do a little stat run through. 159 games. Career-high 46 home runs at this point, led the league, drove in 123 runs, had an OBP of 458, another career-high. This was Bonds' best season up to this point, even having won already two MVP awards with the Pirates. He was clearly home. He was clearly comfortable. He was clearly adjusting well to the quote-unquote new environment, even though he had practically grown up with the Giants. And he was outperforming himself even having nearly three consecutive MVP awards up to that point. Does the OPS Plus start with a two in 1993? It does. That it does, good sir. 206, 204 the year prior. So this is something I'll touch on later too. Bonds was a couple votes away from having four consecutive MVP awards. And this is not the only time this will happen in his career. OPS Plus is a stat that normalizes every hitter to themselves in the league around them uh, to the environments where 100 is always average and it's expressed as like a percentage above it for uh, how better or worse you are than the average hitter. So 
206 means he's more than twice as good as the average hitter. 204 as well the year before. Uh, he's really good. And just to give you per like a frame of reference, Aaron Judge was at 211 in 2022. So this is the kind of year Bonds is just having in multiple back-to-back seasons. And we're not even at the we're not even close to the best of it yet. Not even close. And for the Giants specifically, they were coming off of 75 and 72 win seasons the last two years, respectively. And they got significantly better. I mean, that's a 20-plus win jump in a season. And uh, that was on the backs of Bonds, Rob Thompson, uh, third baseman Matt Williams leading that offense. And they really turned things around quickly in the span of a year. The thing that's like most difficult to comprehend for me is that whole 103 wins and not making the playoffs. That's never going to happen again. You have six playoff teams per league right now. I think the lowest one that got in the National League had 85, 87 wins, which would be the 2022 Phillies first year of that system. Uh, Major League Baseball. 103 is going to get you in. Mets didn't win the division in the National League East with 101 in 2022. They still comfortably made the playoffs itself. So can you imagine just the level of the pressure on Bonds, you go out of a 103-win season, and you have essentially nothing to show for it except your MVP trophy. And people, I'm sure, had a much tougher view on missing out the playoffs at that point before, you know, um, during that time period. So, sure, they won 103 games, which is fantastic, but, you know, there are only four playoff spots total, two in each league. So, it's unfortunate. He generated almost 10 F4 in his first season, too, which is very impressive. So, like, the the point we're just going to continue to drill into people's heads is that he's really good, like, at essentially all points of his career, which goes into, like, something I wanted to talk about during this one is that he was, before even the word steroids even came up for Barry Bonds, considered, like, the best player of the 90s. Uh, and he was somehow, like, we're going to get back to this when we get closer to 98, 99, which is in a few minutes, just bear with us, that he's going to become underrated again, which for a guy who's putting up these incredible seasons statistically he's winning mvp awards he's considered possibly the best player of the decade he's still going to have this feeling and maybe it stems also from these this lack of you know tangible team success that he's being undervalued which is just you know complicated it's sad there's a lot of different things you could say uh strictly about the on-field results not being there and how the perception and judgment of the time for a guy who is just leaps and bounds above the rest of the league pretty much could have that perception of undervalued at any, at any point, but it's going to, it's happening now in 93, not making the playoffs going to happen later on. It never really goes away for the guy. I'm not somebody who was very familiar with Bonds' career, especially pre 2001 before I started this project with you and to see just how talented this guy was. It's completely changed how I view Bonds' hall of fame candidacy. And we'll get more into that in a future episode, but he truly was talented without any of the, substances that we'll discuss allegedly i, I guess uh, that, uh, that he is just the most complicated guy it is just crazy that uh there's just this much to say and 94 great year too uh very complicated year there uh no playoffs no world series no accolades to show for uh that's going to go on for a little bit so in 94 specifically uh the baseball strike happened correct no? Because the Giants, you know, sure they didn't make the playoffs, but that's because the playoffs didn't exist this year. Yeah, uh, it was there were no playoffs. It was a messy labor issue, is all I'll say. Uh, the players won. Uh, the big fight was a salary cap, which I bet you Bonds was not thrilled about as being the highest paid player in the league history at that time. 
the idea that they'd want to, you know, curtail salaries probably didn't sit right with him and any other player. And well, we don't have a salary cap today in baseball. So the players definitely won that little dispute, but the consequence was things like the playoffs, the world series. There really is no way of knowing what would have happened for Barry in 94 with, you know, a month and a half of the regular season and the entire postseason banged. Uh, let's pull up real quick, or even for ourselves, like to the audience, how far along the Giants were in 94 before the strike. So they were at 55 and 60, still three and a half games back in the division. So they can still like make a run here. There, there's strike, strike starts on August 12th is when the season um, shut down and never resumed. So it's not unreasonable to assume a team with Barry Bonds on it can make up three and a half games of ground in a month and a half. Not impossible by any means. So you really could have been robbed of your your Barry Bonds postseason success starting a little a little earlier and having the Giants have more to show for it, which the problem I, I said a couple minutes ago is that Bonds was great and there was like nothing to show for it. And it kind of changed how everybody viewed him for a really long time. Yeah, some of these things, you know, plug Bonds into the, the mid-2000s and, you know, like the playoff opportunities that he missed, that he was locked out of having because of the way that playoffs were structured and divisions were structured back then. Plug Bonds into... Now, you know, things might be a little bit different. He was kind of a victim of circumstances in some ways. At the same time, he, of course, benefited from some of the circumstances that he was in during the time period, which we'll get into. But, yeah, a lot of those, you know, playoff accolade, a lot of those lack of playoff conversations kind of don't take into account the fact that Bonds can't do it all on his own. But No, baseball does not work that way at all. No. Even though if anybody could do it on their own, it would be Barry Bonds. He's still in that shortened season, hit 37 homers and had a fantastic year, a down year by his standard. But I think we can and should kind of fast track the discussion right now of that whole thing you just touched on is one player can't do it in baseball. Uh, I'm going to give you three names and I want you to tell me what they have in common. Okay. Sure. Uh, Barry Bonds, Ken Griffey Jr., Mike Trapp. Three phenomenal players who had fantastic starts to their careers, who did not get to play much in the postseason and were not able to carry their teams to victory, but were ridiculed for that. Ding, ding, ding. Uh, I'll say that much. Uh, it is a weird sport. Those three are probably the top three answers you'll get for best player of the last 25, 30 years. None of them have a championship. Trout doesn't look like he's anywhere near it with where the Angels are. Griffey never played in the World Series. Trout has one postseason series to his 10-11 uh, year career. Barry Bonds uh, has nothing to show for it. So it really does go to show that baseball is a sport like it's not football. It's not basketball, especially basketball, where the best players generally are more responsible for their teams uh, and playoff success is a little bit more of a fair bar to go by in those sports. Uh, baseball is not like that. Barry Bonds is, like I said, uh probably the clear best overall player of the nineties. When you look at the body work and there is just zero, he can't do it himself. There's like, there's so much pressure, but he has zero ability to on his own, carry a group of 25 guys to winning a world series trophy. I just want to like make sure the audience understands that because baseball is a weird sport in that regard. And sometimes you don't pick up on uh, one players. We talked about their statistical contributions Barry Bonds can only swing the bat one out of every nine times through the order. And he's, you got to have a ball hit to him on defense to make a defensive play. A lot of it is out of his control. But when it's in his, when it is in his control, 
he's you know doing everything he damn well can to make the Giants as good as possible. Well, that's just the nature of the sport, and it's one of the most frustrating takes to see online when people start blaming people like Mike Trout, like Shohei Otani, of course, Barry Bonds as well, for not being able to carry their team of 25 players to the playoffs. It's just not how the sport works. And once you really understand just how good these players are, if you really do understand, I see it, it's impossible to, to then state you know, that it's somehow their fault for not getting their team to the postseason. I think it's just ridiculous. I like that you say Shohei because he's a all-star caliber pitcher, all-star caliber position player, uh, offensive player. And even he can't do it. The Angels have not even gone over 500 with him there. So it, it's a game of failure, and it's not a, it's a game of unfairness as well. Shohei is the best example. I mean, he does it on the mound, in the field, at the plate. So if he can't carry his team to the playoffs with one of the best players of all time in center field, then nobody can. Even so, the thing, like, even at this time, Barry, you said, put up almost a 10-war season in, in 93. It, it opens up the question sometimes where some of these war totals, and Bonds is not even close to his career war peak, uh, of if you'd rather have the one extreme outlier hitter or pitcher, would you rather have one of these Bonds seasons, I don't know, maybe a 2000 Pedro Martinez, 1985 Dwight Gooden pitching season, or someone like Shohei Otani who's just going to give you incredible runs of both because it really Shohei Otani's war is still nine, 10 range the last couple of years. Bonds is still doing that same thing. Uh, he gets even higher than that pitchers too, like Pedro and, and Dwight Gooden. So I, I will ask you, would you rather have someone like Barry Bonds who is just so scale tipping on one side, like higher than Shohei gets combined on either like in the war totals or someone like Shohei who has the two roster spots and the two skill sets like that. I think it's very contextual. It depends on the needs, you know, where you lack in other areas of the roster. On average, I would have to choose out of 100 more times Shohei than Bonds just because, you know, you're going to get that consistently fantastic production um, on both sides of the ball. And, you know, your average team will be lacking in both areas. If there's a team, you know, that has fantastic pitching that might have, you know, more of a lackluster offense in those kinds of cases, I would, of course, choose Barry Bonds. But as somebody who can do it both ways. I think Shohei is the much safer choice um, that can apply to more teams and their rosters than someone who only performs in one capacity can. I think at this stage of Barry Bonds' career, I might agree with you. When we get to uh, his best, his four consecutive MVPs, uh, which is coming in the next installment, I think I'd actually rather have that uh, because the the war totals are higher. He's doing like, I hate to just lean on war. War is not a one-stop shop for stats, but I think it's a good way of showing that how good he was is like statistically outweighing the double component of Shohei Otani. And I think that the years that we're going to get to when he's pushing 40 uh, of like possibly the greatest years in the history of baseball that have still been yet to come in these discussions, they're so good and they outweigh someone like Shohei even that I really can't like in an, I would feel stupid if I don't take them. I feel like something I might be not considering enough is how much Bonds changes that lineup, you know, putting pressure on pitchers, knowing that he's gonna probably take you deep and put up a good at bat every time he's up there. Definitely changes the nature of a lot of the other at bats in that lineup and definitely adds a lot of pressure uh, to the guy on the mound. But at this time, he's still very much power speed. Like he's consistently 
30-30 seasons, which is 30 home runs and 30 stolen bases. He even gets to 40-40, which there's only, I believe, four guys who have ever done it. Uh, it's A-Rod, Canseco, Bonds, and Alfonso Soriano have 40 home runs and 40 stolen bases in a season. Uh, I believe he did that in 1996 is the 40-40 year. Yep, but he was the there's first also years to do sorry, it. Sorry, go on. He was, sorry, he was the first to do it. He became the first NL player to do it in 1996. First National League player, yeah. First National League player, Huge deal, obviously, because like I said, there's only four in the very – baseball's very old, and there's only four guys who've ever had 40 and 40 in a season. Uh, Bonds almost did it again several times. He had some years we'd have, I don't know, 40 home runs, 37 stolen bases. I believe that's 97 stat line uh, when I was reading up on this, if you have that handy. Uh, if you want to confirm 97, you said? Yes, is 97 – 40 home runs, 37 stolen bases. Yes. Good job, bud. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but should, should, like, imagine doing it twice, uh, which he almost did. His father almost did it. His father had some near 40-40 seasons. But the like Barry Bonds being this much of a power speed guy, there is no true like comparison in baseball history for that archetype. Like he's got that – he's going to get into the – record-shattering home runs that pretty much the average citizen, let alone the average baseball fan, might be able to tell you. Uh, but before that, there's also this like weirdly overlooked and forgotten element of speed and base running to his game that is a huge part of his archetype at this time. Yeah, to think about all the exclusive clubs that Bonds is in all by himself in uh, in terms of offensive numbers. And then to think of all the ones that are still very exclusive, like the 40-40 club where there are only four or five who've ever done it. And um, to take that into consideration too, Bonds really stands on his own as this all-around offensive behemoth. And this year, 1996, that you were talking about, he became the fourth player to join the 300 home or 300 stolen base club. And three of those players, which is actually very interesting, three of those four players were, including Barry Bonds. Could you name them? Can, I'm sorry, can you repeat that? I, I won't lie to you. I spaced sorry. out for half a second. That, that was a weird way to ask a question. I apologize. <laughs> so 1996, Bonds becomes the fourth player in history to join the 300 homer, 300 stolen base club. There are four players at this point who have ever done it. Can you name three of the four players? Bonds Willie is Mays is definitely one of them. Willie Mays uh, is one of them. 300 and 300. I'm going to say Mickey Mantle. You give up? No, it's a, um, do I get any no. wrong guesses? Sure. I'll give you one more. Uh, Frank Robinson. Bobby Bonds. Bobby Bonds. Oh, Bobby there you Bonds, go. Barry Bonds, <laughs> Willie Mays, three of the four players. Bonds, his father, and his godfather make up 75% of that exclusive list. What a family. I was, I was just genius. in the last episode saying, hey, Bobby Bonds was like really good. We don't give enough credit. He was basically the comparison to his son. And then I'm, mm. I'm now really upset that I didn't think of that. <laughs> hey, Damn. you live and you learn. That that really blew me away, though. Imagine that. That's incredible. What a family dinner that's going to be. <laughs> no kidding. And there was actually, speaking of 1996, there was a great story that I wanted to share with you that I had asked you beforehand. Uh, I teased it and asked you if you had heard of it. It involved John Smoltz. Can you confirm that you still have no idea what I'm alluding to? I have zero idea of what you're talking about. Okay, so quick aside, in 1996, 
Barry Bonds, Mark McGuire are two participants in the home run derby. And Barry Bonds thinks that John Smoltz is rooting for McGuire, which he is not happy about. So Barry goes up to John and confronts him and gets upset, of course, and tells him that the next time that they face, Bonds is going to hit a homer off of him and do what is called a pirouette at the plate. Do you know what that is? Is that the twirly thing that he does? I don't know if he normally does it, but I know ballet dancers do it. It's when you put one leg or one foot on your other knee, right? And then you twirl around. Can I'll you do a... that for me right now? Okay. Get, get stand up. <laughs> I shut the camera off. <laughs> <laughs> so this was his this was his deal, essentially. So John Smoltz counters that if Bonds strikes out, John's gonna sit on the mound and stare him down. So Bonds being competitive, obviously gets upset and says, All right, I'm gonna hit two off of you. So flash forward to nineteen ninety seven, a meaningless September game between the Giants and the Braves. Barry Bonds hits two home runs off of John Smoltz the next time he sees him. And the story is not done. He did not do a pirouette. I don't know if he forgot. I don't know if he rather would have rather done what I'm about to tell you. He goes to the Atlanta team bus, hops on the bus, and he's looking around for John Smoltz. He's like, where is he? I got to go. I got to go mess with him for it. So he actually goes to the Atlanta team bus to find John Smoltz to confront him about that deal that they had made in 1996, the year prior. Never I forget. love it. And I do love that I thought of the twirl thing just to piggyback that. And I, I feel like I almost got it when you said it's a ballet thing. Bonds had this, like, there's another home run he hits in the candlestick park hour, which is exactly the, the meat of what we're talking about before the giants change stadiums, uh, where he hits a home run and he like does a, like a swirly thing with his feet in the box where he almost like does like, like a ballet move where he's like dancing out of the box. And this is pre bat flips, pre home run celebrations. Uh, he's got some showmanship to him, Barry Bonds. We we don't we got to give him credit there. He's a he's a good entertainer. I think he probably had that Jordan esque balance of competitiveness and making it fun and interesting and entertaining. Like you said, he's he's given himself that motivation to launch tanks off of John Smoltz for our amusement, and it really is just great showmanship. And I love that uh, you informed me of this story today. Thank you for that. Of course, and two quick things. Bonds, Bonds's value extends far beyond what he does with a baseball bat or with a glove. In terms of his entertainment value alone, that's pretty significant. And then two, I'm pretty sure Bonds has hit more home runs off of John Smoltz than any other pitcher except one who's tied for that league. That lead, I'm sorry. And Are you asking me who it is? I wasn't, no. Just a statement. <laughs> May I guess who it is? Sure. I genuinely don't know the answer, so I couldn't. Oh, I thought you, if you had it, then that would be great. <laughs> oh. um. Sorry. And by the way, in 1996, Smoltz had actually won the Cy Young, so Bonds was making good on his promise to hit two home runs off of this guy, off of the off reigning the Cy Young NL Cy Young Award winner. Yep. I'm going to just Google for our purposes. I'm going to guess that he hit the most home runs in his career off of Chan Ho Park. There are five who are tied with eight. Oh, five who are tied. Okay. Uh, first, they are John Smoltz, Greg Maddox, Terry Mulholland, Kurt Schilling, and Chan Ho Park. Nice. Good guess, bud. Can, can you imagine the top of that list being John Smoltz and 
Kurt Schilling and Greg Maddox. Of course, you know, the Braves were in that division for a little bit, but in 94, mm-hmm. they had split. So not that as... means he's getting his one or two meetings a year with the Braves and just scorching them. Yeah. Uh, which is funny, again, to circle back that he almost was an Atlanta Brave. Mm-hmm. But it also, you could probably infer that Bonds is going extra hard when he's playing Atlanta because of all the history between them, right? And just the competitive nature and the Braves being so good at this point probably brings out the best in him. So one stat that popped out to me looking at Bonds' 1996 season, he walked 151 times and struck out only 76. Hmm. Can you believe that? Especially looking back with the context of how hitters strike out so frequently today. That's insane. And this is 96? 96. This wasn't even... He doesn't win the MVP Bonds. this year. Nope. Finishes fourth. Fourth. For a season like... And he went, that's the 40-40 year, and he finishes fourth. Fifth. Sorry. Even worse. Fifth? Even worse? He finishes fifth. What yeah. are we doing, writers? But to kind of segue into something that we're going to be talking about later, um, the finishers above him were Ken Caminiti, Mike Piazza, Chipper Jones, and a man by the name of Ellis Burks. Finished third. Did you guys know uh, that Ellis Burks played with Barry Bonds? He did when he was traded to the Giants as an August or a July 31st trade deadline move in 1998. So when you were with San Francisco in 1998, um, you were a trade deadline acquisition. Uh, So what's that process like? Did you know that you were on the block beforehand? Do you guys pay attention to those kinds of rumors as they're going on? Um, does that change yeah. the way you think? Say you're in a game right next to the trade deadline. Does that change your approach at all? Do you, are you guys thinking about that stuff? You know what? Interesting you asked that because I knew that I was going to be traded at some point, not knowing exactly where that might be. Um, because, you know, at that time I was a 10-5 guy, meaning 10 years in the big leagues, five years with the same club. So if I got to that point, I could veto any trade. Mm-hmm. And before that happens... Rockies decided to trade me into the, the division in, uh, with, you know, with San Francisco. So, um, no, I did know it was going to happen that particular day. I thought it was going to happen a couple of days prior, but we were in Chicago playing the Cubs and I had gone back out to center field. And all of a sudden I saw Curtis Goodwin sprinting out to center field. And I said, Hey, what's going on, man? You, am I going to left or right? He said, no, you're getting the hell out of here. You just got traded. <laughs> So it was a shock to me also. And uh, I go back to the dugout and uh, find out to who who it was. It was to San Francisco. And, uh, you know, I shook hands with everyone, all of the players. And, of course, Don Baylor was the manager. And off I went to meet the team uh, in Philly. Do you think it was easier that you, you know, it was kind of just broken to you? Well, the easy part is knowing you know, uh, the group of guys or the team that I was going to, I, I knew Dusty Baker as a, a good friend prior, uh, didn't know I was going there. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, you, you get that opportunity. So you go from worst to first, that also helps. So, you know, you go into a club that has an opportunity to win. Um, and at that point I hadn't had a world series championship, been close a few times, but never had an opportunity to play in the fall classic. So I was looking forward to that opportunity and being able to help that club in any way I could. Did you feel your Giants teams had a shot to win the title during your two and a half years there? Of course. Oh yeah. I mean, um, you know, that particular year, 98, they were right there. 
And then, of course, uh, you know, the last the next couple of years, uh, 2000 for sure. But, uh, yeah, it was it was just one of those situations. You go in, you don't know what to expect. It was the first time I'd actually been traded. So, you know, you, you fly into uh, Philly. You don't have any of your things that you might need. You just thinking it was a 10 day road trip. We left Colorado, go to Chicago and had a couple other places. But I leave there and I go immediately to meet the team in Philly. So I didn't have a lot of my stuff. I had to fly back home um, and, of course, get some things before going to San Francisco. But, yeah, it's it's a shock. But, of course, it's a business. You know, as a player, you know, that's a possibility at any given time of the season or any year. So, you know, you, you have to be ready for that at all times. So the reason why they got Ellis, the Giants 98, is they are making a playoff push uh, in a great lineup that has Barry Bonds, obviously, is the figurehead of it. Jeff Kent. This, this is a team that does have meaningful baseball to play and a great lineup uh, and a team that was trying to do big things. They had yet to really achieve that yet, though. Do you think having other superstars in the lineup, in your case for San Francisco, Bonds and Jeff Kent, how do you think that changes your role as a veteran middle of the order bad, if at all? I don't think it changes my role at all. It just enhances it. Uh, you know, you got a guy like Barry Bonds who are, you know, he, he's feared throughout the, the league, uh, throughout baseball, as far as his ability to get on base, hit home runs or whatever. Jeff Kent's right there behind him. Then you have me coming up. I mean, there's nowhere to run, basically. You know, as a pitcher, you know you're going to have to pitch to one of these guys. And, you know, the way Dusty Baker had staggered the lineup and, you know, balanced it off, lefty, righty, lefty, righty, it was pretty amazing that we had what we had and we were able to do the things that we did. He was traded to the Giants as an August or a July 31st trade deadline move in 1998, which is the next year I think we should talk about because it was a pretty significant season, not just for the Giants, not just for Bonds and Burks, but baseball as a whole. People called it the year that saved baseball for a variety of different reasons. There were tons of storylines. I'd actually made an entire video dedicated to this in 1991. Um, a young 22-year-old Alex Rodriguez joining the 4040 Club, David Wells' no-hitter, Kerry Wood as a rookie striking out 20 batters in a game, one of the best Yankees teams ever constructed, winning 114 games, uh, Barry Bonds, which I'm sure you'll want to talk about, maybe you can walk me through this, drawing a bases-loaded walk in the first year of Diamondbacks history, the Diamondbacks being the team that decided to walk him with the bases loaded. Could you possibly walk me through that situation? Pun totally intended. As well, to first, how... just make sure David Wells doesn't kill us. It was a perfect game. Uh, I don't That's want him important. out. I don't want him out for my neck when we say no, no I, hitter. I appreciate uh, so that. Make sure that we don't, you know, get violence inflicted on us. I'm gonna make sure that's there. But bottom of the ninth inning, Diamondbacks are facing Bonds. There, they have a two-run lead, and Bonds is up with two outs in the ninth inning, and they decide the Bonds is so good and so likely to end it right there that they walk in a run to make it a one-run game and have the next batter, Brent Main, come to the plate. Brent Main lines out to right field. So it worked as, weirdly, bases-loaded intentional walks do. Uh, there's a weird phenomenon of it happening. Uh, Nap Lajaway is the first one they know of in Major League Baseball. Josh Hamilton had it done. It was done this year to Corey Seager uh, with the Angels and the Rangers. It was also done, I remember, in a regional for Adley Rutschman, who's at Oregon State. The weird thing 
is that all these teams who have issued the bases loaded intentional walk have won the game as Arizona did. And it was by a man named Buck Walter officiating uh, the decision to do that. He didn't have crazy analytics at his disposal. He didn't have, you know, a front office situation saying, hey, if it gets down there, you do it. His intuition was just, he is so good and so unbelievably deadly that he can end this game on one swing. And we are better off bringing a run in from third base and not even letting him do anything and then having the next guy come up. They are that scared of him. And then the thing that I remember the most, we can great segue into the next topic, is that they show a stat leadership on the screen, right? For Barry Bonds. And it has a typo on it for someone else. It says Mark McGuife on it with an F. Mm. Uh, That's a great little nugget of, you know, televised baseball. And it's great that this happened in 98 because Mark McGuife, as as they'd like to call him, um, did something very historic in 1998. He became the first player to hit 70 home runs in a season. He and Sammy Sosa were pushing it. They each became the first two players to get past 61 in a season, and they did it in the same year. Uh, there was a little bit of, you know, performance-enhancing substances involved there. The culture was very different at the time. This is an era where Mark McGuire has visible stuff in the back of his locker during interviews. No one really cared at the time. Uh, and it was just, those two guys were the biggest story in baseball by far. Maybe the biggest story in baseball in terms of national mainstream appeal of the last 40, 50 plus years at least. Uh, the home run chase to see who would be the first one to you know, get past 61, which was the standing record at the time in a season, and who would get to 70. So that's the landscape we're at. Notice how Barry Bonds is totally pushed off to the side with that, and he noticed it. I'll say that much, Dale. Yeah, to the to that point, it was not only the biggest story in baseball, but as you alluded to, one of the biggest stories in all of sports and media. And it, some people say, saved baseball at a time when interest in baseball was declining. This kind of brought fans back and got people excited about it. I know Sosa hit 20 homers in June that year, which was, I think, the most that's ever been hit in a single month. These two guys homered on the same day 18 times, going back and forth to chase this home run record. And as a big baseball fan myself, and I'm sure you feel the same way, it would be really nice to get a window into that time period, potentially even to have lived it would have been a pretty good opportunity. But we also had the opportunity to speak to someone who not only lived through that time period, but who got to play in a major league dugout as this was happening. And we asked him about how the players saw this home run race. Around that 98 deadline that we were talking about was around the time that home run race between McGuire and Sosa was really heating up, taking the world by storm. Yep. Um, I know the Cardinals and Cubs were outside of your division, so they weren't on the forefront of your mind in that regard. But were you or any of the guys you were playing with paying attention to that? And um, oh, of course. how did that make you feel about the sport, the future? Were you guys thinking um, big picture like that? Or I think at that time, it was just one of those situations where, you know, Every night, it was something going on. It seemed like one of those guys hit a home run every night. And it was amazing as a player to watch that happen. And I'm sure it was even more so exciting for the fans and, and of course, baseball. But, uh, you know, every night, like I said, it was something good happening. But 
you know, those guys were doing something for the game that a lot of players hadn't done in a while. I mean, I think you brought a lot of fans back to the game considering, uh, you know, what had happened prior. But, uh, you know, those two players, I mean, two of the great players in the game, and it was just fun to watch. Does that amp you guys up at all? Just the, the popularity around the game. Is that something that kind of meta <laughs> question, that atmosphere? Is that something you guys ever take a second to dig in? Yeah. Well, you know what? I was amped up just to finish our games and watch it each night just to see who th who hit the home run because you know someone was going to do it. And, and, and like I said, it was just fun for the game. Um, it was just uh, even Barry, you know, he, he paid close attention to it. And of course, you know, the next couple of years after that, he was one of the ones that were in that in that same race. The thing that is also very interesting about the home run chase is that there's an alleged conversation. Keyword is alleged after the season that Barry Bonds had dinner with Ken Griffey Jr. after the home run chase. And he kind of vented to Ken Griffey Jr. Bonds saying that he felt that McGuire and Sosa were taking the acclaim, the spotlight, the national media appeal, the statistical performance that quote, clean players like Bonds and Ken Griffey Jr. had deserved. And that was the point where the switch kind of flipped in his head to try the same performance-enhancing substances that Sosa and McGuire tried. Both sides vehemently deny this, but it's been reported in numerous reputable sources and publications before. There was this little secret heart-to-heart -heart that they had where Ken Griffey Jr. chose to stay steroid-free because he wanted to be able to look his kids in the eye and not say he cheated or did anything unethical, whereas Barry really fed up. The writing on the wall was there. Uh, those two guys saved baseball. That's the terms we used a few minutes ago, the term the media was using after the strike touchdown earlier kind of hurt the public's interest and trust in baseball. Bonds wanted that credibility uh, and performance because he's realized, I'm this good without touching that stuff. I can blow those two guys out of the water if I touch steroids, uh, which it seems is exactly what he did. And about this race as a whole, it was undoubtedly one of the most influential events that have happened in baseball history that's kind of shaped the um, the baseball brand. And so conversely, a few years later, it would also be this of the same magnitude for a very different reason and would kind of hurt baseball's brand slightly. And we'll definitely get into that uh, in a, at a later date. So also in 1998, Bonds hits his 400th career homer, comes on August 23rd. He's the first player ever to join the 400-400 club, and he is still to this day the only player that's ever done it. He wanted more clubs, but he's the one and only guy in 400-400. That's uh, The power speed is still very much there. I hate to be a broken record, but it's just... It is mind-boggling to see that one guy is just... It's just a raw athleticism, strength and speed. It's like superhero stuff that we're talking mm -hmm. about. Like those same out-of-this-world physical attributes. There's one man on a baseball field who's doing it unlike anybody else. And from 1990 through 1998, Bonds averaged 36 homers and 36 stolen bases. Hit 327 total and 328 steals. So he was stealing bases as consistently as he was hitting homers. I guess the better way to say that is he was hitting homers as consistently as he was stealing stolen bases. Best player of the 90s, baby. Yeah. Now, one more question. with A lot of people will joke about this. My question is, what do you think, I know this is a pretty broad question, what do you think made him so successful? Was there a certain like intangible that just stuck out to you with him like just 
him coming to the ballpark every day? Was there just something, what, what about him do you think personally made him so successful? I know a lot of people will say PED, yeah. whatever, blah, 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 but what do you no. think personally? It was his focus, man. He was so determined. And I think a lot of that comes from his father when he played and Barry was at the ballpark watching his father play, watching, you know, Willie Mays play and just to see what his dad went through on a daily basis, what his dad did to prepare himself every day. You know, Barry learned a lot about the game. If you notice, guys that have kids that play, just that was around the club, they they make the game look so much easier because they, first of all, they take all the pressure off of themselves. It's just a game to them. They, they don't worry about the crowd. They don't worry about coming up in a certain situation. It's that focus. Ken Griffey Jr., you know, Vlad Jr., uh, Bo Bichette. I mean, all these guys that came up in clubhouses that were kids there saw how to play the game and to manage themselves in the game way before any of these other kids did. And that's that's my opinion as well. Thank you. <laughs> but Barry, Barry, Barry was just, just focused, man. He was one of those guys, he would go in before naps were one of the things that a lot of players in, in today's game are doing prior to games. They'd take a little 20 minute nap. Barry would do that on a daily basis. He'd come in, you know, we do our stretching, you know, do whatever, go out on the field, hit instead a lot of guys going in to play cards eat in the lunchroom or eat their little snacks or whatever prior prior to the game bear would be in the back taking a nap headphones on locked in and you'd see that he come out we getting ready to run out there and stretch he'll go do three or four sprints he's ready to go bam locked in every day doing the same routine and that that was his thing total focus does that like impress you like just specifically like in that moment you're, you kind of have to like take a step back and see that kind of routine dude he had me taking naps and i didn't i don't sleep that day. <laughs> you know it was one of those things i said let me try this you know what i'm saying i go in there and take a nap i come back even more sluggish so no it didn't i was just me. about to ask you if it worked so thanks for stealing no. that right out of my mouth <laughs> there you go it didn't work for me put it like that in 1997 though Giants do make the playoffs. They play in the National League Division Series against the Marlins. And surprise, surprise for Barry, to further the narrative, uh, they lose. They don't advance in the playoffs. Barry Bonds has still yet to win a playoff series after 97, whereas the Florida Marlins won the World Series, team that vanquished them. A five-year-old team, or five seasons deep team, four calendar years. They start in 93. They start when Bonds goes to San Francisco, the Marlins. And they win a World Series before Barry Bonds does. Before he wins a playoff series, even. They win a World Series. They win three playoff series and a World Series in their fifth season before Barry Bonds wins one singular playoff series. Bonds should have went to the Marlins, if you ask me. <laughs> how, did he, how did Bonds do in the playoffs? I'm just trying to pull up stats for it. I'll do it right here. He went 3-4-12 with two doubles. Okay. Better. Small sample, but better. So they got swept. And they get swept. And the Giants get swept by the Marlins. This is uh, maybe the lowest postseason point yet, all things considered. Uh, in terms of like output, at least when the, the, the throw against the Braves in 92 and LCS Game 7, they're that close to even getting there. This day, they just get blown out of the water by a five-year-old expansion team. 
I, I don't think you could beat the morale low of 1992 personally, but it's absolutely a disappointment for Bombs. I would say this is as bad of a look, though. Because you have zero, you you get swept for the team. Yeah, I don't know for Bonds. I don't know ninety two, especially with Bonds having made that decision to not move in when asked by Van Slyke. Do you at least see where I'm coming from, though? Like, I do. Yeah. At least you got that far where the one play mattered. You just happened to screw up. This is you just everything around you. You got you got your teeth kicked in pretty much. Yeah. No, I I can see that. So 99 and 2000 are now after this conversation with Ken Griffey Jr. Uh, 9090 doesn't make the all-star team, which is the big uh, giant elephant on the baseball reference page. Once you start looking further left and there's the you know stars in the column that represent his many and consistent all-star game appearances. Uh, and 2000, he's fantastic again. Giants make the playoffs. Uh, they lose in the first round again to the New York Mets. And his teammate, Jeff Kent, wins the MVP award. So Bonds is probably feeling as weird as ever, that he's still in this weird limbo spot. He's now on the wrong side of 35 uh, around this time. Uh, I believe 2000 is his age 36 season. Uh, 35. 35 season? Mm -hmm. So 2000 is his age 35 season, where for most people, the career is starting to wind down. He has never won a playoff series. He now has a teammate who is winning the MVP, and whether or not Bonds is having better years is to be determined. I know he leads baseball in OPS Plus in 2000, so maybe you can even say Barry Bonds is robbed by his teammate in 2000. So this is probably very wonky headspace, but another way to word it is calm before the storm, all things considered. And just to recap, Quickly, Bonds's career up to this point. One of four players in the 300-300 club, the only player still to this day in the 400-400 club, not even including his fourth and fifth place MVP finishes that he had multiple times throughout his career. Almost five MVP awards up to this point. Two runner-up finishes. Almost won five at this point. And like you said, it's a kind of calm before the storm. He had a career-high 49 homers. And even with all of this stuff... I think this next line here, let me, let me just average it out first. So from 1993 through 2000, Bonds averaged 40 homers a year, 28 stolen bases, 106 runs driven in, had an OBP over that time of 439 and an OPS plus of 181. As you said, he was getting older. He was entering his age 36 season and he was about to get way better. Through 1997, Bonds was ranked 34th on the Sporting News' list of all-time great baseball players. And by the end of the 2001 through 2004 period, he was ranked 6th all-time among baseball players. There is one more thing I want to throw in and add to cap off for our viewers to show uh, how different this time was and how quickly things were going to change. So in 2000, Backyard Baseball 2001 comes out, right? And they have likenesses of players in them uh, as kids, as Backyard Baseball did. Barry Bonds is one of them. And they have the ratings for these players, right? They have speed maxed out for Barry Bonds. They do not have power maxed out. They are about to really regret that. <laughs> uh, we better call Bailey. 